there was like a guy from the, the NBC 10 news that just like interviewed me and he was like, what is this? Like I've been reporting <laughs> for 30 years and I've never seen anything like this. Like, This is Max Rameau, strategist, theorist, author, and organizer with Pan-African Community Action. And you are listening to The Next World, a podcast about building movements. Once a month on this show, we will explore and celebrate the work of poor people's movements, particularly in the U.S. We will highlight innovative and powerful organizing campaigns and community building led by women, LGBTQ folks, Black communities, and other people of color that are pushing the boundaries and have the potential to transform this society. Today on the show, we're focusing on housing actions and victories in Philadelphia. And our guests are Sterling Johnson and Jen Bennett, two organizers with Philadelphia Housing Action. Together, we will explore their victories and setbacks in their work to take over vacant housing in Philadelphia and their lessons for the movement on the human right to housing. Sterling and Jen, thank you so much for joining us on The Next World. We are really excited to have you here from Philadelphia Housing Action. And this is just really difficult to wrap our brains around. Again, so I just want to to confirm, is it true that Philadelphia Housing Action has won your campaign and the city of Philadelphia is giving you 50 units of housing? Is that correct? Is that accurate? Is that is that a mirage? Is that a dream? Am I dreaming? Yeah, it's, it's correct. Um, it's actually 25 houses coming from the city and 25 houses coming from PHA, but there was also a- PHA meaning Philadelphia Housing Authority, is that right? Philadelphia Housing Authority, yes. And then there was a separate agreement with the smaller encampment that was at the Housing Authority. So that brings nine additional properties. And then the properties that were already um, occupied that we had put families in will also be transferred to the land trust. So what's the grant? So does that mean 59, 60? It'll probably be closer to 70 with the units that are already squatted. Wow. That is, that's incredible. So basically a movement organization, this is, you're not a 501c3 or anything like that. You don't have like a million dollar budget or anything uh, are you are you directly getting checks from George Soros? No. I think this is really exciting, and I think this is a game changer in the movement. But let's start from the beginning. How did it get here? You're in Philadelphia. There is a housing shortage there, as there are many parts of the world. And uh, presumably, you are getting together, your organizers are getting together, and you're talking about what you can do and what you uh, what some of your options are and what you want. How did this come about? What do you do? What are your first steps? What's the time frame here when this is just when this campaign is starting? And what exactly are you deciding to do? And then how do you do it? It's like this has been um, a campaign for myself personally and the others still in our own ways for years before this. So I guess number one is that I was formerly homeless. I was homeless for seven years. I slept on the streets of Center City, Philadelphia, and I didn't really at the time um, being like young and freshly homeless, didn't really understand the politics and that I'm sleeping at City Hall and people are walking past me to get awards for serving the homeless population and not even acknowledging our presence. So there's that wow. part of the history, but 
more recently, um, I live in North Philadelphia now, um, and I went through an issue with the Housing Authority Police Force, and they had vehicles that looked exactly like the Philadelphia police. So I went on this mission to like get them to have distinctively marked vehicles in uniforms so that they couldn't like engage in Fourth Amendment violations without people even knowing what happened. And through that process of going to the Housing Authority board meetings, I started to really see um, how they were spending millions of dollars a month on everything but housing people. And I started to see how they were selling off all the land, um, and particularly in my neighborhood. And then I started to see that um, actually, like riding around, walking around, and people that I know are being moved, and houses are being boarded up, and then they're being sold, and then there's student housing, and just kind of flipping the whole neighborhood through this process of selling the land and houses that were owned by the PHA. So that's kind of like what led up to all of this for me was trying to stop the auctions and trying to keep my neighbors in their homes and trying to get the PHA to house people on the waiting list instead of selling the houses off to private developers. And I occupied PHA headquarters last year for um, five months. It wasn't as big as a brand new $45 million office. Nobody really paid attention. There may have been two news articles. Um, and at that time, we were trying to like stop the auctions, stop auctions, get the police force disbanded, get the CEO um, fired for like paying himself double the federal cap, things like that. And over the years since then, um, I started working with like Sterling and Wiley and others and did more research and learned that the houses that were being auctioned were RAD, which means the assistance is like transferred to another unit and that unit will be disposed of. So they couldn't house families. So that's kind of where the demand to have the houses put into um, a land trust evolved from. Like we all knew that they would be sold and wouldn't house a family anyway. So that's kind of how we ended up here. And, you know, I was keeping a list of, empty properties, trying to see if maybe we could get an attorney to like sue the city and housing authority for their role in like intentionally displacing black people from the neighborhood. And at some point we all kind of together came up with the idea to start like housing people in those empty units to push for the demand. Wow. And this happened while you were, you were learning how to organize while you were doing it, or were you part of a bigger organization that was teaching you to be an organizer? No, I was just the person that was really angry at the PHA. All right. Sterling, what what about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a, a definite part of this thing where it's like we're just like kind of embedded in these places and these people and with, with these people. So I will say I kind of come from the drug user population kind of thing. And, and I don't know, I come from the AA culture where it's like people just like talk to people. You always help people. You like are in these spaces, but people are constantly like going in and out. Some people are using, some people are not, but like these are all like your friends. So I'm just in this space where it's like self help kind of stuff and some weird kind of ideology, Christian ideology stuff too, but try to keep away from that. Organizing is like, I just have a bunch of people that want to help people. And that's just like what it is. And then I do know a few organizations that are like long term organizations that are like harm reduction, quote unquote, based, you know, that are. Collective and Project Safe, and we had a 
early on before it kind of dissolved, there's a big drug users union that was like building up in Philadelphia about like organizing. I'm like, I, I'm like friends with these people. I'm like, for- so you don't, so because you're friends with them and you think about yourself as, as helping, you don't, you don't think of that or you don't regard that as organizing. Is that what you're saying? I think it is organizing. It's just like different. I don't know. We use organizer cause that's what's like the term, but like, I don't know. These are people that like, I just know around the city. Uh-huh. And of course it's organizing, but it's like, I don't know. It's like different than reaching out to people. I mean, and you talk about, you see like people on the street and you're like, yeah, I, I used to be on the street with that person. So yeah, I know them. You weren't like, you didn't go to Bryn Mawr or like Haverford and then you picked a cause that you wanted. And then you ended up like friends with this person because you had saw them at a clinic that you did your, your like rotations at or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a lot of us. Um, I mean, myself personally ended up in this fight out of, like necessity and like living in mm. in the midst of this thing so it's it's different i i think that i've kind of really learned that over the past couple months when people in other places that are in kind of movement stuff have been reaching out and people are like yeah we have like the law team and the bell fund and the pr team and the media had the story like ready to go and with us it was very different. I mean, there were like five of us. And last year with the Occupy PHA, there were like two of us and um, really no money, no finances, no support. Like all the lawyers in city are in with the city. All the nonprofits are down with the city. Like we were kind of coming into this like totally um, alone. And we really did this from the ground. Like when you say grassroots, like this was fully, fully like grassroots from the bottom. So a couple of trends here I'm noticing or, or, or insights here. One is that organizing doesn't necessarily mean going out and meeting a bunch of strangers and trying to convince them to join your cause. Uh, but it looks like it really does start at home. It starts with who you know and, and with situations that you're uh, you're dealing with. And the second thing is it looks like that organizing can also benefit greatly from people who are directly impacted and who don't necessarily have this formal training in organizing, at least in the way that we think about it now. Uh, but let's shift real quick and talk about then how this how this came into the modern time. So we'll do talk a little bit about your background in here. At some point, uh, I got the the, the word that there were uh, there was an encampment in the city of Philadelphia where there was a, a an empty lot, a public lot, and in that public lot there were tents that were being erected. Uh, how did we get there? How do we get from I want to help people? How do we get from uh, yelling at the uh, uh, at the uh, Philadelphia Housing Authority and getting them to uh, change certain practices? How do we get to uh, to this takeover of, of of vacant land in front of the housing authority and uh, elsewhere? Like I'm a very direct action, crazy, spontaneous person. I mean, when I occupied. The PHA last year, the one that was like totally ignored by everybody and a lot of things happened during that. But I literally just like asked my friend Fredo if he wanted to occupy PHA. And I was like, if he says yes, we'll do it. And if he says no, we won't. And he was like, yeah, fuck yeah. So that was how that one started. So I'm I'm just really into like direct action and was really like, determined for this thing and so it started with the housing takeover that we did actually started before the encampment and we started doing that way back in March and we had to keep it really quiet because um 
because of the fact that the housing authority has like its own police force. It doesn't have to follow the law. Like they can just use their cops to like drag people out of houses. So we were kind of like really quietly doing it. And at the time I was like already banned from the PHA board meeting and there was like COVID. So everything was shut down and it was kind of really difficult to be as active and do the direct actions and be in the meetings and the council sessions. Like we, normally would, but we were spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to protect the mothers that we were putting in the houses and figuring out what means there would be to get the properties transferred. We were talking about like adverse possession or conservatorship or all these different. Um, so from, from the beginning, you wanted to get these houses turned over to you. You had that idea in your mind from the very beginning. Is that right? From the beginning of moving people into them. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we were just sitting in my lot. Like, I have, like, a, a lot next to my house that's vacant, and I just, like, use it as, like, a side yard or whatever. And we were, like, sitting in my yard, lot, eating and talking. And we kind of, like, jokingly, really casually talked about the idea of, like, starting this encampment. And then, like, that week, we did start the encampment. So you actually did the the taking over. And the housing, just to be clear, the taking over the housing was vacant uh, Philadelphia Housing Authority public housing units that were not housing people. They were just sitting empty. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And so you took those over. And then once you had a certain number of those taken, then you kind of up the game by going into these public areas in front of the Philadelphia Housing Authority and in front of uh, uh, a park right off of the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. Right. Yeah. The first encampment was the one on the parkway and then the housing authority refused to come to the table when the city initially met with us. So I moved a group of people up to the housing authority to pressure them to have to come to the table about two weeks into the first encampment. And what was the profile of the people who you were moving into the public housing? So we had on a previous edition of this show, we had Moms for Housing, which is a fantastic group out of uh, the Bay Area in California that moved with with great fanfare, moved uh, uh, several mothers into a, a vacant uh, home and then launched an eviction defense there. What was the profile of the person who you would be moving into these housing units? Mostly mothers. There wasn't really... A, a process that was just kind of like we believe that everybody deserves housing so it was kind of whoever reached out and wanted to and was willing hmm. to move in the houses which ended up initially being mostly mothers and then kind of as the encampment started we started moving some of the people from the encampment into um houses also which were more like single people or couples well, talk about the encampment for a moment. So the encampment is a, 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 is right next to an expressway. It's a big public park. And what happened there? What did you do there? And what did the encampment, as as you're calling it, look like? It started with five people. And by the end of the weekend, by the first weekend, there were over 100 people there already. There we had like big banner hanging up. We were doing a lot of actions early on um, got to a point where we blocked off traffic to like a main street for like what during like over a month oh yeah wow i forgot about that yeah that was <laughs> <laughs> they changed bus routes they were just like ah, i guess we're changing the bus route now i'm like ah, yeah, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and well just to be clear when you're saying there were 100 people there or started out with five people you mean otherwise street homeless 
people who were who now were 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 living inside of tents laid out in this intentionally built community. Yes. Mm-hmm. So people are starting to flock here. They're hearing that it's there. People are starting to flock there. You went from five to a hundred within uh, within a week, uh, from five tents or whatever number of tents it took to house that number of people, all the way up to a hundred people, and then and then grew from there. Uh, what was day to day life there? How were decisions made? Were decisions made uh, inside of the group, or were just people coming? And then if they were made, how were they made? And what was the relationship between you know? I, I know you, you you feel uncomfortable with this term in some ways, but between the organizers and the residents, or did you see a difference between them? Or did you yeah, see I, I mean, in terms of the way decisions were made, this culture would change a lot because uh, people just the vibe would, would change. Drastically. Based on who was there, you mean? Based on who was uh, there? The, uh, everything from the volunteers to that would come and get really excited about it to some of the people that were unhoused that then would uh, kind of uh, like kind of take a, some kind of leadership role or they'd be given a leadership role by a volunteer in a way that would. It was it was very interesting. It was um, I don't know. There's so many contested things around encampment. The whole goal is like this self governing space where people are able to talk to each other and figure out issues and no cops are involved. Um, but I, I, th- I think, I don't know, that's a whole other episode, Max, in terms of like <laughs> making this new world um, and how that was supposed to happen. It was kind of just a space where a lot of the things that were happening around there uh-huh. uh, were happening at the encampment, just in terms of like the harms of people, the joys of people. Uh, of but, you know, I would say that people, nobody was... Well, the camp was not an oasis. This wasn't some Garden of Eden that was created, right? The the problems that people brought from the other side of the street carried with them to to the to the to the park. Uh, but I think it's still, you know, in my brief time there, I think it did fill people with dignity, where they felt like they were able to say, "Look, this is my place here, and I get to make some rules here." In a way that you don't, that people who have no space, who have no place, who have no home, as we as we imagine it here, people who don't have those kind of spaces often have trouble asserting. And I think some of us take for granted. Autonomy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, the the camp seems to be run a lot smoother when we were making sure that people knew who the enemy was and doing actions like with the smaller encampment. I, I made sure that we did actions at least twice a week. There was a lot of political education and it wasn't really in like a, oh, let's all have a meeting and I teach you these things, but it was more in the casual everyday conversations. And, and at times um, I wasn't really sure if it was getting through to people or not, but kind of at the end of the encampment one day, the CEO of the housing authority had came to the encampment in person and Somebody asked his name and he said, like, Kelvin Jeremiah and this person that I thought, like, never was listening to any of the stuff I would rant on and on about. It was kind of like, oh, you're the CEO of the Housing Authority. What are you doing down here? And I was kind of like, okay, so maybe we don't always see it, but we really did um, make sure that people really understood, like, who was making money off of them, who was benefiting off of them, who was really, like, responsible for the conditions that they lived in. And then we faced, like, a lot of eviction three different eviction threats. And there were a lot of times where it seemed like we wouldn't get anything. So like the relationship was kind of up and down. Like when it looked like it was going good, everybody was really into things. But then when it looked like it was going bad, sometimes people would be really 
upset. So I, I think that the way that the relationship between us and the people that um, lived in the encampment was like up and down. I mean, there were times where we were almost like enemies because it just seemed like everything was like falling apart or people weren't really trusting things. And then there were times yeah. like when we were really good friends. And then there were times when we would sit down, I mean, myself personally, and really get to know some of the people there and really build relationships way deeper than organized or resident or people protesting together, but real friendships where I would share things about, you know, my past and people would share things. So I just think it was just really multidimensional and it was up and down and in a lot of things. You know, I think it's important to talk about that, some of the difficult parts that happened uh, as well, because when a lot of times when the public or even other organizers are looking at a political victory, uh, we tend to, to romanticize it and only think about the victory. And it's difficult sometimes to get details about how hard it was to get there, not just hard in terms of fighting your target, but hard in terms of what organizing means, what building new communities means, and some of the challenges that are inherent therein. You know, so I think it's really important that we hear this. Max, I think that that's like one of the things that like, a lot of the times when we're dealing with some volunteers, as soon as there's like this break in an emotional or somebody yells at somebody, they just want to break it off and they want to leave. Part of like all this work is like staying with it. And, and and honestly, you'll have a fight and somebody will like not want to come back maybe for two or three days, but you come back. You have to come back unless there's some irreparable harm that happens. So that happens too. But in general, staying with the harshness and the harm is like is like part of is part of us like getting together, especially people that come from many different places, thousands of different places in, in this in this world. Yeah, I think that's right. I, th- I think it's part coming back is part of building a long term movement, and that's really what we need to be doing. So I think that's important to uh, important to say. All right, so this is happening. You have taken over several individual units, and now there are these uh, two, and then eventually one tent cities encampments. Uh, what do we call it? The city has taken notice. The Someone comes down from the housing authority. Obviously, the city police are watching. So the city has taken notice. So how does it happen that you get into a discussion with them about getting units from them? How does, how does the discussion begin? And then how do they proceed? How did you ultimately end up getting this thing? Like, you know, how did you approach them? Did you go to find someone and say, uh, can I get 50 housing units from you? What happened exactly? <laughs> okay, I guess. <laughs> I can start if that's if or do you want to start, Sterling? Oh, you can start. <laughs> yeah, I think like what's important that I tell a lot of people who reach out and ask about things is like that the city knew us like before we built this encampment. Like I was like I said, I was already like banned from the PHA board meetings and I've been like drug out of city council um a lot of times. Um and I go to their houses and do direct action. So like, it wasn't like, oh, who are these people that built this encampment? They were probably more like, oh, wow, all these crazy people are together and they have this encampment now. So yeah. it was kind of like they already knew who we were. They already had contacts for us through email and phone and like like all of that. So I think initially we ended up in a first meeting that was more done for show. I feel like the city just did it to say like, oh, we tried to meet with those protesters or whatever. And the PHA was pretending like we weren't there at the time. So there was like an initial meeting where 
we took a bunch of residents and we all went um and the city kind of just talked about a bunch of nothing and after a while i think it was sterling who just kind of like read through the demands and was just like can you do this can you do this can you do this and we all left kind of angry that sunday that was on a friday that sunday was the day that i moved a bunch of people up to um pha in the middle of the night and um so that like we could hurry up and get our tents down before they would notice us and try to get rid of us and the next day pha was just building a fence around us and bulldozing at us and they had all these cops and it became like a big thing and somebody in the neighborhood called the media and the news ended up coming out so that whole thing got like called off but we were like half gated in like and they were just like running bulldozers the the eviction the eviction got called off because the media was there yeah, I, I think it was just because there was like the, the parkway encampment was there and then the media ended up mm-hmm. coming and it, it just looked like a big circus. There was like a guy from the, the NBC 10 news that just like interviewed me and he was like, what is this? Like I've been reporting <laughs> for 30 years and I've never seen anything like this. Like they had maintenance, <laughs> like building a fence around us. They didn't clear the scene and they were like, bulldozers just running at homeless people and they were like cops and like we're pulling the fences out of the mud as they put them in and then they're like grabbing them back out of our hands and it was just like it was like a circus it really was and so it got like called off and that's kind of when pha ended up coming to the table and then we ended up like in this months long process where we would like go back and forth and the city would offer like all this stuff like shelter beds or COVID prevention hotels. So they were offering you all kinds of of other enticements other than actual housing for, and you're Sterling, you're saying those, those enticements did not exist. Well, yeah, they they just wouldn't exist. You know, part of, I, this is like my like kind of insider strategy of like, I know these processes. So like, I will just say, like, so I know when they, when they say treatment, they're talking about like something that doesn't even fucking exist. Right. (laughs) <laughs> like I'm like I called them ten days. There wasn't a bed available for this person that wanted treatment, or like the COVID prevention hotel. Why? Okay, if it's available, why am I giving getting putting all these these applications in and everyone keeps getting denied? Tell me what's available. And that's not even for us. You're lying to us. And then I would go to the media and I would say Mayor Kenny's a liar. They would say you put in 140 people into. I'm like, show me the fucking list of people. They are all at this encampment. You know, so that's how those are the things you gotta do, you know, to kind of you gotta say because I'm like every one of those people, I was like, I, I, I lie, they're liars. The treatment system spits them back out. People want or try to get your services, but they can't even get the service even if they wanted them. And how are they supposed to trust them when they've been kicked out of four different places? You know, so I'm like, those people are lying. Every one of those, you know, that's what I would just say to the media all the time. Fine, because they they all like to push outside the encampment. I just go to them one by one. And then just and just yell at them, you know, stuff like that. And when you're doing that, when you're attacking them, when you're when you're calling them liars, you're not at that point worried about losing your deal. No, that's the truth. <laughs> that's the yeah, point. yeah. The, the deal. I mean, the deal is like a legal agreement. It's like signed, it's like a real agreement. Mm-hmm. So. So it's so you yeah losing the deal, losing what we didn't lose it. We didn't have anything. That's why it's like... <laughs> yeah, and yeah. the deal was... came at the end. I mean, most of the process, we didn't really think we were getting anything. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So then you you go through this process. You're turning. Uh, they're making you offers, which you identify as bogus offers. And finally, they make an offer. They make you start making legitimate offers. And at some point, they say, "Here's 50 units plus." So at some point, 60 to 70 70 units. So this seems like then your entire team at this point is like, "Yes, let's do this. We want it." This is what we've been fighting for the whole time. This is exactly what we want. And you jumped at the chance first. Uh, you jumped at the offer first chance you got. Is that right? Kind of. It was. Yeah, it was actually like at first. I think like I had this. The PHA in the city had been saying like it was against HUD guidelines to transfer properties. It was illegal. We we're asking them to commit a crime. And I kind of like had really quietly like emailed HUD and put in this inquiry and add them all the properties and HUD had emailed me back and was like, yeah, PHA can transfer properties to their board of commissioners and they don't need us, which I knew because I've been to all of their board meetings. And so I think that kind of might've been what led them to offer houses. But when, even when they first offered houses, they were like trying to offer 15 houses and yeah. Then they were showing us houses that were like falling down in the back and had trees going through them. So it wasn't like a jump at thing. It was still um, a few weeks of like arguing and going back and forth. And then kind of what happened was the housing authority encampment was actually on a $52 million construction project that we blocked for three months. And, um, so what really happened was they were going to lose $52 million if we didn't vacate that premises. So that's where I got a phone call one day about from the CEO of the PHA, and he made the offer for the agreement for the smaller encampment. And that's kind of where that came from. And then after we took that offer, a lot of people were kind of like, oh, PHA is going to back out now and they're not going to help with the parkway encampment. But I I knew that that wasn't the case because I knew that they would be under a lot of pressure. They had gone behind the city's back and made this agreement while the city was still dealing with this big mess on the parkway. And I knew that it was pretty strategic to take the Camp Teddy deal. And it was that led to the 50 house offer um, for the larger encampment. Wow. Well, that's interesting. It looks, so it looks like if you threaten $50 million from the, uh, a $50 million windfall from, uh, from the city, they'll give you a couple million dollars worth of, worth of concessions. It looks like. So I think this is a great lesson about the importance of direct action. Yeah. You yeah. Think, I just so? think that, that that's the most important thing. The fact of the matter is that it came down to the money that they're going to lose. And if Jen did not sit on the property that needed to be developed, as other people can do around the country, sit on the fucking place, sit on that place that they need to develop. And that's what did it. That's what pushed them over the edge. What would have happened if, if you didn't, yeah. if that wasn't the case and there wasn't that a timeline for them important. to develop it. All right. So, so that's, that's how you did the negotiation with the city. What about your internal discussions inside of Philadelphia housing action? Were you clear that this is what you want? I mean, this seems like a big step. I remember when uh, I was with a group called Take Back the Land and we got our first offer, which we did not win, by the way. We just, we did not get as far as, as, as you've gotten here. When we got our first offer. We had some confusion inside of Take Back the Land because we were going from being protesters to potentially being what? A landlord? Is that what we really want? We're protesting landlords and uh, we had the chance to become a landlord and that didn't sit too well with anyone. What was your internal, aside from what you were dealing with, with the 
uh, with the city, uh, what was your internal discussion like? Was there unanimity around the idea that you should take this deal and you should get the housing and you should develop it or or, or do whatever it is you're going to do with it? Yeah, I mean, we we have that same thing of like, how the hell did we protest ourselves into being um, technically <laughs> landlords? <laughs> like, I still think about that every single day of my life now. But I I feel like I guess from myself, speaking for myself personally, it's kind of like, I think that even even having this property and being this like so-called landlord or whatever um, is still very revolutionary. And, and I think that it would have been really selfish not to take it just because of my own ideologies around being a landlord, because this is like, taking this land is doing so much for so many people, not just the people that were squatting or homeless in the encampments or homeless at all, but like these are 70 properties that PHA was going to sell to private developers who were going to build billion dollar condos that were going to like run people out of the neighborhood. So I think for myself, like all of what can be saved by taking these properties outweighs like whatever, other ideas I have around like being some sort of property manager. Wow. Yeah. I think that, I think that that's like the main point It's like a rad, the rad like program specifically that started by the Obama administration, Julian Castro, um, you know, those people that tried to neoliberal, neoliberal our way to uh, sustainability or something. Uh, but they, what all they've done is take this public property and made this like easy way give it to private developers and places that are targeted inside of Philadelphia are these neighborhoods like like Brewerytown and Charleswood and places in West Philly um like Mantua you know these, these are this, this is the way that the, the the housing authority is like a deliberate uh, actor in gentrification and displacement and ultimately a genocide of like of the people that live in those neighborhoods and they change they just um you know I think I think like laying that out for people and then seeing how the nonprofits like are a part of it too, you know, the way that they, I mean, I just can't believe it. You know, Jen has said this for years, but the, the way that they take those houses and, and then they give them to like these nonprofits, the subsidies to the nonprofit, and then they just dispose of the houses to like some lecherous like private developer that then like builds like a three-story whatever, like monstrosity in a neighborhood, you know, shit like that. I have a vision. I think we have a vision of, of like creating like a stopping all the displacement. I will tell you, there's there's this, this one last building in West Philly called the Art Villa that the nonprofit housing developer sold it, and then this place like forced by like 40 people in this in this neighborhood in the West Philly. It was like the last building inside of this catchment. And the University of Penn, all, they take all their white children, they take them to the school, and they've been it's been drained of all the black students in this really good school. In West Philly, in this catchment that's been targeted by all the, all the white people, they displaced all the black people from this neighborhood. It's not even a race thing like that. All the poor people are being pushed out. And instead of like actually trying to stop it, the people I was working with were like, "Well, we just need a soft landing for those people." And, and what we what we know is like, no, no, we don't need a soft landing. We need to make sure that we got somebody on every single block that, that yells at the at the gentrifiers. Everybody on every single block. Our, and that's houses that will be in the community land trust that's going to harass the gentrifiers and all the displacers and all the people trying to change the neighborhood. It's like, nah, not today. First, the people on my block, they're trying to talk to the drug dealers. And we just tell them, shut the fuck up. I don't care about your security. 
and you give a, a middle finger to the security camera every single day. That's what we do in our neighborhood, you know, in, in, in West Hashem, because like those people, they don't deserve to be there. You're not going to try to like, like talk to people, be in the neighborhood, be among us, and fuck you. You know, that's the, that's the, that's our position on this stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, I like, feel like we've complained about this thing for so long, and I've complained about this thing for so long, and put my body on the line for it for so long, and watched so many people like be harmed that like turning this down then then what could i say how would i feel if i turned down like one of the 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 deal for the smaller encampment was like nine houses that are on one block that are all red that would be like it's like a small working class and in poor black street where people have all been there forever and so if we turn that deal down then what happens is PHA sells all those houses to private developers and this whole block is flipped and everybody's like run off of it. So how would I feel later on if like, because I didn't want to be labeled as a landlord, like every person on this block, some of these people that I know that have been really supportive are like now gone. Like, like it would have just been like, to me, like I can't complain about this thing in the future that I see happening. If I like turn down this opportunity to actually stop it from happening like 70 houses mm. not going to developers makes a really big difference in the future of this neighborhood yeah and and just to be clear the 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 houses that we're talking about are going to a community land trust so technically you wouldn't be the the the, the landlord even if you would be part of the the management team or the uh or have one of the votes in the land trust is that right yeah yeah nobody's gonna own the house like i don't own the houses sterling doesn't own the houses the people who then them don't own them. They're like owned by the land trust and like kind of decisions are made collectively about them. So as far as I've been able to tell, this is the first time something like this is happening where we've had a direct action that resulted in a city handing over huge chunks of land, huge actual housing to an organization and not even like uh, some well, politically well-connected organization. Uh, it's to people who have been protesting the housing authority this whole time, right? So this is, I think this this has the potential to be a game changer, uh, both for the community that is going to benefit from it, but also for a movement that's going to be looking back at this. What are your hopes then for the people who needed housing and participated in the protests? Uh, and what are your hopes for the way that this victory is going to impact the so-called social justice movement in the United States. I mean, I, I don't even think that that it's it's really happening, but I really think that there there has to be a change in the way that we're doing this. Uh, the kind of the the paid organizer model is not working. Um, money is is still just just go into people's pockets and it's just, we got to figure out a different way to do this. Um, you know, I guess that's what I would hope that was, would be seeing. Um, and, and because we need to stop the, the gentrify, the, the like displacement situation, you know, um, and then, and also just take it um, and not do like one action that's symbolic, but like create the space for people to actually be in this place. So, um, you know, I, I don't think people, I don't think people have it. I don't think people ha- have, have the balls to do it. I don't know. I just don't, I'm starting to lose faith in it. You don't, you don't think this is going to spread beyond 
You don't think you're about to inspire a bunch of other organizations to do the same thing, formal or informal organizations? No, 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 I don't. I'm going to invite you back when I prove you wrong. No, <laughs> no, no, they're not, they're not willing to do it. Every, everybody I talk to. Let's see. I don't think people have seen it. I don't think people have seen it done and therefore they couldn't be the first one to do it. But once it's done, I think you're going to have a flock of organizations who are jumping to do it. We'll see. Of course, time will tell. But I think I think you have just sparked something that you you don't realize yet. That's well, I, I, I will tell I will tell you, Max. I talk to people. And we go, we say exactly what needs to be done, and I will say it over and over again. They just they, they won't do it, and I feel like I talk to people. They need to see the model. They need to see the model. We'll we'll see. It'll play out over time. But I think they need to see it done before they could. A lot of people do, and you guys didn't, but a lot of people do. Jen, what do you what are your hopes for the people who were there? Uh, and what are your hopes for the impact this has, if any, on the broader movement? Yeah, um, I mean, my hopes for the people that are there is like that that they can rise up, like not just not just have a place to stay, but like that they that this really builds like self esteem and this really builds self sufficiency for people, and that it builds you know a community where we can t- continue to fight um, beyond what we've gained here and where people are able to take care of themselves, where they're understanding the way that the system was holding them back and the concessions that, that come from the system aren't, aren't really worth everything that comes, you know, behind it and where there's like a more self-sustaining community where people aren't um, dependent on others, like where, where it's a community, but not a community like relationship where it's just like, I need this and like where people are able to do for themselves and others, I guess, and, like, for the movement overall. I mean, I do hope that it inspires other people. I mean, I totally feel where Sterling is coming from because we do talk to people and um, they just don't really seem down to do the things that we did. But, I mean, we have not talked to everybody. And, I mean, for the movement, I hope that people see to, to not always aim small, like aim big, aim for what you want. And that you can take power away from the government. Like, let's stop, let, let's shift the movement. Like, let's stop protesting for the government to do something for us. And let's protest for the government to give us back everything that they've taken for from us so that we can, you know, do for ourselves. Because I think the movement is a lot of times focused on, like, what the government <laughs> should do for the people. And, like, I'd rather see the movement focus on the government giving back the people, everything that they stole from us and allowing us to rebuild and to have our own communities. Yeah. 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 Cause it, there's something like among this like group of people that is about like creating, you know, kind of like maroon society, kind of like partisan society, is, like a whole different society from the thing that is. And, and whether you need like a movie like the matrix or whatever to like make yourself understand that it is all about cutting it, cutting us off because like, like, basically some of the power people probably see us and they're like, okay, we can co-opt them. And they could, they would give us money. They would give us a lot of money to do, to do their bidding, but but we have to reject that, you know, like, and a lot of people won't. There's so many different decisions within this that, that are about rejecting all the ways that they try to use their power and influence, uh, to, to like bring you in, 
take their tendrils and put it in there. And then we have to reject every single one of them. And all the things in me, like this like like little gay boy that wants to say be nice and happy and stuff, like has to be I have to reject all those things, right? Say like, oh well, I got reached out by this person or this person seems nice. You have to reject every single one of those instincts. Yeah, I just don't see other people, even when we say it, because it's really hard. And I don't know, it's hard for myself to say like, no, no, we, we no, we don't want anything. We don't want your, any of it because we're going to build it ourselves and we don't need you. And we understand all of the ways, you know, whether you just get it because you, you, you know the system, because you've been like sitting in the, in the, in the county assistance office or you read something some Foucault or whatever, it's like, it's like all these little things, you know, you understand there are strings, the strings that are good. You take foundation money, there's strings. Even if they say there are no strings, there are strings, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Sterling and Jen, thank you so much for being with us here. And thank you so much for your work with uh, Philadelphia Housing Action. Thanks for having us. Okay, that's our show. Thank you for listening to The Next World. I'm Max Rameau, and you can find out more about my work at pacapower.org. That's P-A-C-A power.org. You can read more in depth on many of the issues we talked about, including land and housing, on our Partners in Dignity and Rights website, dignityandrights.org. We'll be back with another episode of The Next World soon. Until then, please tell your friends about us and help us spread the word about this podcast. Goodbye for now. And remember, organize, organize, organize.